0: So here's some exciting news. The on-being Saturday morning email newsletter is back. Curated by our wonderful colleague Kristen Lynn, The Pause is an offering towards the common life we hope to embolden and accompany. Our way of living the questions with you while also providing food for reflection and conversation. You'll receive updates on our latest conversations, writings and poetry from our blog, invitations to live events, and other news and musings. Subscribe now
1: at onbeing.org slash the pause. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
0: Maria Shriver's life is often summarized in fairy tale terms. A child of the Kennedy clan in the Camelot aura of the early 1960s. Daughter of Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who founded the Special Olympics. And Sergeant Shriver, who founded the Peace Corps. An esteemed broadcast journalist, First Lady of California. This hour, she opens up about having a personal history that is also public history and the ordinariness that is her life and any life, however glamorous on the outside. In this 50th anniversary year of the assassination of her uncle, Bobby Kennedy, she offers an extraordinary window on the echoes between the 1960s and this decade of ours. We experience the toughness for which the women in Maria Shriver's family are legendary, but also the hard-won tenderness and wisdom with which she has come to
1: raise her own voice. I'm not here trying to get a vote from my father or my brother or my uncle or my cousin. I'm not here campaigning for Arnold. I'm not here for NBC. I'm here for me. And at the first moment, I'm 62, and I'm like, okay, I deserve to stand on this stage. I got my eye on. (laughs) So um, I say that to people so they don't despair, that sometimes it takes really long time to feel like you deserve to be on the stage, you deserve to be in the room, you have earned your eye. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being.
0: Maria Shriver is a special anchor for NBC News, and she has a new book, I've Been Thinking, Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations for a Meaningful Life. So you know, I want to start where I always start, which is um, with your uh, with the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. I feel like the general contour of that is pretty known, but but how would you start to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood?
1: Both of my parents, obviously deeply religious, deeply Catholic, deeply focused on social justice. Uh, both of them went to church every single day. My house was filled with uh, pictures of Mary, Mm. who was my mother's hero, heroine, was the person my mother referred to most often, other than her own mother and brother was Mm. Mary. Mm. Uh, So it was really all through our home. Uh, I was educated by the nuns, and then I went on to the Jesuits at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. My father made us go to six forty-five mass every day. Um, I, I was also, I think, raised in a church that felt to me very judgmental, mm-hmm. uh, felt to me uh, very anti-women. So my brothers were all altar boys. I was the only one, um, not an altar boy. So yeah, I you were felt four already. Boys. Uh, you were five kids, one one yes. girl, yeah. One girl, and so I felt separate in my um, experience of my church. I went, as I said, to an all-girls school, and there were the nuns. And I I remember distinctly, actually, even in high school, first time I missed Mass on Sunday, I thought I was going straight to hell. I thought, you know, God was going to see me, and you know, I was shamed. So I also, I think, had a feeling of the church as a place that shamed you and judged you, and you know, there were sinners and not sinners. It was very black and white. Yeah. And and then I have come back to my faith in a deep way as an adult and have found it to be very uh, nurturing for me. It's given me a home. It's given me a community here in Los Angeles, which can be a tough town. Yeah. And um, I find myself leaning on God, whatever my vision of God is, and my faith.
0: Hmm. And we'll talk about that some more. Um, So, you know, not that long ago, I was interviewed by Ezra Klein for his podcast. Mm -hmm. When he started the interview with me, he said, I want to do a variation on your first question. And so instead of asking me about the religious background of my childhood, he said, what was the political background of your childhood? And that was such an interesting question. And so I was born in 1960, right? You were born in 1955? Correct. I was born on the night your uncle, John F. Kennedy, was elected president. And my mm-hmm. father was an Oklahoma Democrat who told me that I was John Kennedy's good luck charm.
1: Uh. So, I mean, so this
0: was like, uh, and, and, then, wow. and, then, and then when he died, I this was my first memory. And I thought I had failed him, you know, as this little four, wow. three-year-old, right? So I was thinking about that question and where it took me being... A person coming of age in the 1960s, the politics was so dramatic. But, you know, what I had to say to Ezra, like where my mind goes first, is all those assassinations of noble, wonderful people. And then I'm thinking about interviewing you, and I notice how people talk about, you know, of course, this glamorous, like being a Kennedy, right? But it's glamorous and heartbreaking at once. And when I look at how people talk to you about this, I never hear anyone say to you, wow, that must have been beyond hard. Those were your uncles who died.
1: Yeah. And uh, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I think, um, you know, in my book and I think really in my life, kind of uh, trying to stake one's ground that you are a human being has really been a lifelong struggle in a way uh, for me, because I think it's, uh, you know, I've always been looked at as a part of a larger group without a name, but with just kind of like hair and teeth and uh, people fascinated with those events and stuff like that, but never really with like, wow, what was that like uh, for you as a person? So I've had to do a lot of work on myself, with myself, to find some peace with that, to uh, heal myself with that, Mm. um, to work on my own identity separate from the larger. And so that's a really complex, complicated uh, subject and space. And um, one, I think that I'm finally at this age able to uh, not get mad when someone asks me about it or not... uh, Push up against it, and when they just would say like, "What's it like to be a Kennedy?" Yeah, yeah, and they don't, you know, they didn't even most of even know my name, or they just were like, "I guess," you know, and I tried to look at it in their own story with it, like your story with it. You're born on that day. You yeah, felt like that a other, good, That like, I felt charm. like I had some piece of your yeah, family, and too. Yeah. yeah. And so I think I, I now can listen to that and marvel at it and be grateful for it and then also recognize that my experience uh, is vastly A 1,000% different from everybody else's. And I can hold that for myself. I don't need to share it. I don't need to talk about it. But I can know that it's different when you're in something as opposed to looking at something from the outside. Yeah. And we're now
0: in this... What is it? Is it the 50th year of the
1: assassination of Robert? Well, that's the 50th year of Uncle Bobby's assassination. Yes, right now. uh, And I look at it as the 50th year of the celebration of Special Olympics. So, you know, I just got an invitation. They're doing a mass at Arlington for Uncle Bobby. And Mm -hmm. I stared at the invitation for... Uh, really the last kind of 10 days debating myself, do I want to go to that? Because so much of my childhood was going to Arlington, Mm -hmm. uh, marking deaths, right? And I thought to myself, I I really don't want to go back and have that experience again, because it's so raw, and it's so present, right? It's so much about Um, how I grew up and so much about making a trek to Arlington. And what was my mother thinking at Arlington? What was everybody feeling at Arlington? Oh my God, we're going to Arlington again. Uh, And then I thought, well, you know what? I can actually go... To Arlington because I can choose to decide that it's a celebration not a marker of a death but you know a celebration of my family a celebration of everybody that's still here and so I want to turn the story around on that day and I want to go feeling like it's not about the past but it's about a moment honoring somebody who stood for something and um, I can do that without being consumed by it
0: mm, okay thank you for that um so you, for you, this year, 2018, I did not realize that the, the Special Olympics began in 1968?
1: Yes. It was the first kind of uh, international games was in Chicago in the summer, mm-hmm. uh, July, right after my Uncle Bobby was assassinated and my mother went there uh, to Wrigley Field and... Uh, there's a very famous quote from Mayor Daly saying, after he saw the first Special Olympics, he turned to my mother and said, the world will never be the same again. Mm. And, of course, it really hasn't. And so, for me, uh, I'm going back to Chicago in July to celebrate the 50th anniversary. A new book just came out about my mother uh, three weeks ago by Eileen McNamara, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And it's called Eunice the Kennedy Who Changed the World. Yeah. And right. um, so I'm kind of celebrating this year. I'm celebrating the arrival of that book, which places her in her rightful place in history. Mm-hmm. I'm celebrating her courage that she didn't cancel the Special Olympics because her brother was killed um, six weeks before, something I probably, if that happened to my brother, I probably cancel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I have her now as a, you know, marker, so I probably wouldn't, but I'd want to. And I'm celebrating her work, her life, her stamina, her restless determination. And I'm also conscious that for my cousins, it's a different kind of anniversary, but that's for them to uh, celebrate, mourn, right. grapple with. Right. But uh, I'm choosing to look at this year as a marker from my mother's work. And also, really, for me, it's been incredible because I've been out on a book tour. Yeah. And, um, you know, to meet people and to see the response to my own thoughts and my own work and my own evolution has been really very moving for me. And it's not something I could have done a year ago or two years ago. So for me, 2018, um, I'm choosing to look at it as a celebration Mm. of my mother's work and kind of an arrival into myself of myself. Yeah, and your book is called I've Been Thinking. (laughs) Yes, and I have. It's right. Yeah, Uh, yeah. right. You have. And it's I. It's the I. You are raising up your eye. So I'm really... I like that. I'm raising up my eye because that has been... At one point, I thought about calling that book, you know, I Am Maria. Mm -hmm. And um, because that's really been a refrain for me throughout my whole life. You know, people always coming up to me going, which Kennedy are you? Which Kennedy are you? And I, and I would always respond like, I'm Maria. Yeah. They'd be like, but which one are you? I was like, mm. well, I'm Maria. And they're like, mm. well, is your father this? Is your father that? And I'd say, no, my mother is. And they'd be like, ugh, mm-hmm. oh, uh, Okay, well, where is, you know, Caroline? Or where is Bobby's kids? Or where, and I'd be like, oh. So I grew up with this, like, I am Maria wasn't sufficient. I am Maria wasn't enough Hmm. and so proclaiming I am Maria uh, has been kind of and I think it's really the work everybody's work right Yeah, I am Krista it's claiming your own self and strangely that is the work of a lifetime it is the work of a lifetime because it ebbs and flows you grab it and you lose it you have it and it's gone
0: Krista Tippett, and this is on being today with Maria Shriver. You know, what I'm thinking when you're saying that, I'm Maria, I'm Maria, I'm thinking of that. Um, I was looking back at when you. Had your mother on stage at the California Women's Conference when yeah. you were first lady, which I attended one year, and it was just extraordinary. And so ever since then, I've been thinking about interviewing you. So I'm really glad we're here now. But <laughs> but I watched the videos just of her, like of the sweep of yeah. her life, and then I'm also remembering when she got up there and she kept saying, like she uh, said, the way she said your name, she's like follow Maria, right, Maria, <laughs> uh, right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I
1: know. Yeah. Somebody
0: wrote about of her her devotion to Maria. Maria was legendary and moving. Yeah, and I think it was I. F- so, so let's talk a little bit about her imprint on the world and on and and how she shaped you. You know, it's interesting when you read people writing about her now; they say she could have been president. Right? That we think mm-hmm. of all the the Kennedy brothers as the presidents and the and the presidential material. And right. uh, you know, I get tired of just if a woman. Sounds impressive. Everybody's saying, oh, she could be president, right?
1: Like, I know. There's something and I actually, weird about
0: that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think that that kind of demeans in a way what she... Not in a way. It demeans what she did do. Uh-huh. Oh, she could have been this. And right. so, therefore, she, she didn't do what she was meant to do. And I think that I like to shift the conversation not to what she could have been, but mm-hmm. what she actually was. Yeah. And um, my mother... Uh, certainly loved people who ran for office she admired people who ran for office she liked people who were in office mm-hmm. and um i think she gave them a certain reverence that she didn't give herself mm. and i was always kind of perplexed by that right up into the end of you her were, life
0: you were aware yeah, of I was. that all the way
1: through that's i was aware because yeah. i had a conversation also with her very late in her life and mm-hmm. i was sitting around uh in the backyard and she had the Camp Shriver, which she started up again, you know, in her 80s. Mm. And she was having, I said, wow, mommy, you know, it's incredible, you know, you have all your children here, your grandchildren, they're all working at Camp Shriver. Uh, It's really extraordinary what you've accomplished. And she's like, nah, didn't have any power. And I was like, what? Mm. I said, you know, you were married 50 years, you have five kids who like each other, you create, change Mm. the world. She goes, but I never ran for elective office. (sighs) And I was like, wow, mommy, you know, that's that's so small in the in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And I think she had left over, as we all do from our childhood or from our young times in our life, the feeling that elective office was the only game in town. And so I think she always felt a little bit um uh, she wouldn't maybe say this but i can say it cuz she's not here less than her brothers you mm-hmm. know and um i think was treated that way in her family and and fought for her own i am
0: mm-hmm. you know you said as many of us do in in our childhood which but i think it was really very much in a mid 20th century childhood right i mean you could almost say in in a childhood of our of our nation because i think at this 50 year mark after the 60s so many things are opening up and appearing different than they did then, right?
1: Yeah, but I think you have to really, you know, stop yourself and Mm -hmm. kind of look at, oh, wow, things are different. Maybe Mm -hmm. I can think differently. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can view something differently. If you're just running through life, it's really hard, I think, to change the message to yourself or change the message that you may have grown up with or that you came of age with. And um, I find that even as I travel around the country, so many people have a message in their life that they're not enough or that yeah. whatever they're doing isn't what they should be doing or isn't big enough. I do want to just
0: touch a little bit more on on the Special Olympics. Um, when I was preparing to interview you, it's the first time I understood, of course, there's much more publicly known these days about your mother's sister, Rosemary, and mm-hmm. how her Mental disability was not something that the family knew how to deal with. And it was kind of tragic that she was kind of hidden away. And and your mother really like shone a light on the existence and the dignity and the beauty of people who had been hidden away. Right. Um, and but what something I didn't know, because your mother's family, the, the Kennedy family, is kind of legendarily sports loving. Right. And that that this is the first time I read that that Rosemary was actually fabulous in sports in that family. Mm-hmm. And yet culturally there was this idea that people with mental retardation, which is which is the language that was used then, yes. or intellectual disabilities couldn't play sports, couldn't play. And so your mother, so this was, I don't know, this was a beautiful thing for me to understand. And she just decided to put this out there and reject it and create this experience, which also became something that gave visibility to this whole swath of our fellow humans.
1: Yeah, I think my mother um, was a competitor Mm -hmm. at her core. She was uh, an athlete and a competitor, and she liked winners. And uh, so I think it's kind of fitting that she took a sports movement and she wanted to prove not only that people with intellectual disabilities could compete, but she wanted, I think, the world at large to see them as winners, to see them as competitors, to, um, to see them as people who could beat you in a race who could, you know, uh, shoot an archery bow better than you. Uh, (laughs) And she wanted you then if that were true. And if you saw that, wow, what else is true? What other misconceptions do I have? What other things do I have to shelve? And so she was before Steve Jobs, you know, think different. She was before, you know, I want to challenge you. I want to push you. I want to make you uncomfortable. And then once I do, I want to grab you for life, and I want you to make sure that you also join in and help me with my mission and my vision, Mm. and, you know, I want you to change how you think.
0: Yeah. So, and, you know, again, if I think about, which I am thinking a lot about, like, just this 50-year period between the 1960s and our decade, and... You know, the disability rights movement, which you could locate, honestly, I think, beginning with those Special Olympics 50 years ago. Yeah. Right? And which now has come to a whole new place. And that's one we actually don't probably think about and celebrate as much as we might.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why, once again, coming back to this biography, which Mm -hmm. Eileen McNamara spent seven or eight years uh, researching and it really places Mummy's political genius uh, front and center. Yes. How she worked on policy, how she worked on behalf of her brother when he was president and her brothers when they were senators. She worked the political machine and she also never leaked, never took credit and yeah. uh, got it done. Um. I mean, I also watched this uh,
0: conversation you had with your daughter, which was really lovely, where she interviewed you.
1: Yeah,
0: um, oh. <laughs> You talked a little bit about, you know, how you had diverged. I mean, your mother didn't yeah. cook or knit or talk or, or t- ever talk to you about sex or relationships. I, yeah. I, I thought this was amusing But where, that she would, when people would tell you how beautiful you were, she'd say, Yeah. Your looks
1: will go. Pay attention yeah. to your brain.
0: <laughs> right. And I was like
1: 15 yeah. 16 at the time. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. yeah, because because I I feel you being so articulate on behalf of so many women, again, who were born into that mid and late 20th century, getting this message, you know, coming right out of the 60s, because because there was a feeling in like the 60s, 70s, 80s that we had pretty much cracked all this. Right. Like, I mean, but but the experience we were having, being told we could have it all. It wasn't true. You know, no.
1: I still don't think it's true. It's not true. And I remember (laughs) feeling
0: like I have been lied to. Um, And so then we, but then we just had to cobble it together. And still women are cobbling it together. And you, it seems to me to feel almost like a mission to you to say that out loud.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I do. Because I think it is a lie. And I think it Mm -hmm. it ends up making women uh, of all economic groups, of all colors, feel like that they're somehow the only one that's not you know, doing yeah. it all, that's yeah. not achieving. And I think very often the images that women get of these other women who seem to, you know, like they're running for vice president and all their kids are perfect and everything's great or they're running yeah. for this and, you know, they their husband adores them. They're having sex all the time. <laughs> right. They don't struggle with their weight. Their right. children are all, you know, 4.0s. And that's just not true. It's just yeah. not true. And so, you know, I think the illusion of balance, having it all, I think that's all a sales job. I think, you know, my mother said to me, look at, you know, life is a marathon and you can quote, have it all, whatever that is to you over a lifetime, Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm your 20s are different than your 30s, different than your 40s. And I remember when um, I had, you know, our first kid and I was anchoring the Sunday Today show. I was anchoring the nightly news on Saturday. And I had been fired, uh, it was about two or three years before, from the CBS Morning News. The whole show had been canceled. And I was really trying to work my way back up. Um, And I was assuming, you know, that once I got pregnant and had... Catherine, that I'd hop right back into work. And it didn't dawn on me that I lived in California, that my anchor job Saturday was in New York, that my other anchor job was in Washington, that I'd have to <sighs> shoot my stories during the week. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This isn't going to work. I, I, it's I can't not do that. Possible. It's not humanly possible. And yeah. when I went into the president of the news division, I said, well, could you at least move one of the anchor jobs to LA, which is the Saturday night? Nobody cares where the desk is. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And by the way, I can fill this job in three seconds before you even get to the elevator, which, of course, he was right. Mm. And I remember saying, well, I can't do this. And he goes, "Okay, no problem. Bye. And I remember going like, oh, my God, I'm such a failure. I can't figure this out. I don't know um, who can figure it out, who is an example. And I think it just is such a disservice to other women when other women say, like, I got it all together. I don't know what's wrong with you. And I meet women all the time who whisper that, you know, I don't have it together, but I can't really say it. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't have it together. I say it and everything else is an illusion. So I think I had great decades. Um, The last (laughs) decade, I find Mm. that, you know, I've struggled quite a bit to find my way, to find uh, my identity again, to pick myself back up. To mother kids in their 20s is very different than when they're 10 and 14. So I think we're all kind of making it up. And um, I think it it will always be the case that people will struggle to provide, parent, partner, uh, caretake. You know, I think life is complicated and life is difficult and life is also great and life is sad. It's all of that and it all in one day. It can happen all in one day and that that's life and not to be scared of that and to know that that's kind of more normal than abnormal.
0: I just want to kind of, you know, just repeat this just to draw a line under it, that this thing you're saying that's so important, but we don't say this out loud, that, you know, we are so skilled and trained, all of us, to be presentational (laughs) um <laughs> right and and then yeah. and we're good at present like we are really we get this is what we get educated to do is present and um and now there are all these platforms for presentation and and yet, it's so true as a woman that you know there are women who look like they have it all. But if you get in close enough to any life, <laughs> yeah, you see this. Um, but it is kind of debilitating this this presentational skill that we have. And yeah, yeah I, and I think mean, somebody it is debilitating. like you, I, I remember hearing just actually, weren't you, I think you were at the beauty counter conference. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I just happened to be talking to somebody who was there, and and he said, you know, you know, you were at this conference, which is which is about beauty. <laughs> Taking that on with some complexity, but that you were just really letting it all hang out there. You were just saying, look, life is hard.
1: Well, I, uh, you know, she asked me, Greg Renfrew, who started Beauty Counter, and it's a clean beauty uh, mission, right? And the the women there... are consultants, but they're also women who are not only trying to provide for their families, but they're also at their root. They have a mission to kind of change the beauty industry. So they go to Washington, they lobby. So she was saying, you know, to me, like, you're heroic to these women. You have it all together. Your (laughs) life is so this. And I'm like, yeah, I sleep alone. No, I I didn't balance it all so well, because Mm -hmm. if I did, you know, I'd be sitting here With a 32-year marriage as opposed to having had a 25-year marriage, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be, you know, sitting here alone. So I didn't. That's wrong to Mm -hmm. think that I have it all, you know, that it was perfect because it was messy. So I try to debunk that myth because uh, it's not really true. In fact, I've never met anybody who, um, quote, has a perfect life, you know.
0: No, of course not. It's
1: important to know that because then you don't experience so much shame when you're going through what you think is, you know, a disaster or what is messy, you can more like okay, other people have done this and they've gotten through it, so it's okay. Yeah. As opposed to like I'm the first person in the world to, you know, whose marriage fell apart or whose kid has trouble. Like I was talking to a friend yesterday and I said to her, you know, how you doing by the way and she was like, you know, my son has depression. And um I had to pull him out of school and she has this huge job and all that sort of stuff and she goes mm-hmm. and I've been whispering about it but I wanted you to know and I said you know so many people I talk to whose kids have depression yeah, and anxiety right. this is and epidemic. she's like oh really yeah. mm-hmm. and so I think we're all in the oh really phase mm-hmm. so I think um, the more I can do uh, to use my voice about um, you know uh, this is a marathon uh, nobody's life is perfect. You're here for a reason. If you're down, you will get up. Um, if you're down, there's so many people who've been in that place before. Don't feel shame or be ashamed by it. And and I want to be with people, like I tried to say at that beauty counter thing. I want to spend my time with people who have a mission, mm-hmm. who uh, feel they're here to do something, however small or big that is, because those are the people that interest me, because I find them often... You know very real and they mm-hmm. have a, a mission that i might not agree with but i i like people who have that kind of fury and passion and purpose
0: after a short break more conversation with maria shriver Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts to listen again and discover produced and unedited versions of everything we do.
1: On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind.
0: Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious i'm krista tippett and this is on being today i'm with maria shriver raw and wise on having a personal history that is also public history and the ordinariness that is any life however glamorous on the outside This summer marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of her uncle, Bobby Kennedy, as well as the 50th anniversary of the first Special Olympics founded by her mother, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, and she's published a new book of Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations. You have a chapter in the new book, I've been thinking. You have a chapter called The Power yeah. of Reevaluating. And you just go through one kind of basic elemental life experience after the other. Um, I like you on the marriage part, you say, um, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm divorced as well. You said, I always thought people whose marriages didn't work out were quitters. I was wrong. I do, yeah. I like it that you say this. I admire people who work in and at their marriages, but I also admire those who chart a new way forward. I really ma- admire those who manage yeah. to stay friends. After their marriages are over and
1: aren't afraid to love again. Yeah, so I think all of those things are hard. <laughs> Every part of that is yeah. hard. I think, yeah. you know, uh, somebody said to me the other day, oh, mm-hmm. my God, Maria, marriage is hard. I said, yes, so it's being single. It's all hard. Mm-hmm. And yet it's all simple. It's mm-hmm. all complex. It's all, you know, there's benefits to everything. So I think uh, what I said there is is true. I admire people who are married 35 years or married 40 years or married 10 years and who – You know, work at it. I admire people who say, you know what, this isn't right for me. I got to chart my own course because that's hard too. I think um, charting your own course and then also managing to be respectful and friendly with someone uh, who may have hurt you or who you spent a long time with in one way, but you can navigate a new way, I think that's hard and admirable. And I think it's really, Hard and or maybe beautiful to open your heart up and say like let me take another shot at this and that's yeah. a beautiful thing too and I I am always interested I did a big book signing two days ago and a woman came and said you know I have a blended family and I stopped there I said how is that what is it like how did you fall in love again like, mm-hmm. you know I'm really mm-hmm. interested in I'm interested in love I'm interested in the definition of love uh, what love does to somebody how to love, how people define love, I'm I'm fascinated with that. Mm-hmm. And opening yourself up again to love is a really courageous thing to do. And I think it's, to me, almost that's the thing that's way more scary to me than standing in front of talking to people, 20,000 people, I'm like, that's no problem for (laughs) me. You know, if somebody said, could you interview Donald Trump or go on a date? I'm like, give me Trump any day, you know? (laughs) And so it's, you know, kind of, but I think putting yourself in a, you know, such a vulnerable place, um, Mm -hmm. and opening yourself up like that is just, wow. So I'm always, um, I'm interested in the subject of love, the power of love, and uh, the ability to love, you know? And, you know,
0: you are in an unusual position to speak about things like this and and for it to be a comfort to people for the same reason that, it, that it's really hard on you because your marriage and divorce, like, you know, your childhood that we were talking about, your your family, those deaths in your childhood, these things unfold in public, And I I can't imagine that you would have chosen that. And yet uh, it does mean that when you say something like that, people feel like they know you and like they can trust you, I think. I don't know.
1: Well, the, the thing is, in this book, which I'm very proud of, I never talked about that in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I think uh, I learned from my Aunt Jackie, actually. I think privacy is really powerful. And I think um, respecting your own and somebody else's is really important. And so in this book, I, I didn't talk about no. my own situation. But I since my situation is public, people feel like they know a lot of it. And I think people bring – what I've also discovered is that people – you know, would come up to me all the time and say, oh, my God, you know, the same thing happened to me as happened to you. And I'd be like, oh, and t- tell me about your story. And it had nothing to do. Right. There was nothing right. that was similar at all. But I think we all um, fall in love, fall out of love, feel all kinds of things that are similar, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think if you just talk about marriage, people assume you're talking about your own or otherwise. But I think, you know, it's important to me to uh as Maya Angelou said say what I know but not all that I know or mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. what happened but yeah. not all that I that happened yeah. and so I think um you know what's important to me is that my children um that I don't say anything about their dad that influences their thinking you know mm-hmm. and that yeah. uh, I look at my um ride with Arnold as having been a great time in my life and um We had a great run. We did a lot of great things together. I came to California for him. That was a freeing thing for me. Um, So here was somebody who said to me, you know, like, you have big dreams, go for them, because mine are as big, if not bigger than yours. And uh, so you do your thing, and I'll do my thing. And as you know, for me, that was a a relief. I I actually don't like I don't like this language of ex husband.
0: Like I never refer. I hate that word. Right? Because because here's the thing, I may have an ex husband, but the eternal role that this person has in my life is the father of my children. Right? Yeah. And that is an ongoing relationship, and it's your
1: family, and it's your family, and it's these people
0: you created together who you adore. Right?
1: Yeah. And and I think you know, it's uh, somebody who knows you. You know I was um in relationship with arnold for thirty four years yeah. and uh, married twenty five years you know we went out nine years before wow. that's family yeah uh, that's very few people in my life do I have a forty one year <laughs> relationship right. with right right so I want that to be okay and I want my children I want my children to see um you know, that I can navigate that. I want my children to have seen me take care of my mother. I want my children to see me, you know, take care of my father and work to try to find a cure for Alzheimer's because that's what he had. I yeah, want my yeah. children to see me try to continue My mother's work in Special Olympics. I want them to see me uh, working to have a good relationship with my brothers and my sister in laws and my niece, and and to expand the definition of family and to expand the definition of who's welcomed at the table. So, those are things that are important to me that I work at and that I want my children to um, witness, not just hear. Uh, Because I remember my daughter saying to me, several years ago you say that but you don't do that and I was like huh that's really <laughs> she's she calls this me is, out my kids call it, me out oh a yeah lot. they
0: they tether us to reality yeah and they humility. do and, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. and so yeah and so she
1: was like you know which one are you and I was like you know it's a really good point they're watching what I do yeah uh, much more than what I say so yeah. um I want them to watch me expand the definition of family. I want them to watch me become a caregiver. I want them to watch me let go. I want them to watch me make mistakes and say I'm sorry. I want them to watch all of that so that when they make mistakes, when they fall down, that they know they can get back up, that they know that the world's not going to kill them if they make a mistake or if they fail. I want them to know all that.
0: Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Maria Shriver. You mentioned right when we first began to speak that faith has become more important to you as you've moved through life, more important again. Yeah. And and it's a big theme of your writing and of your new book and and actually the these chapters end with small prayers. And, you mm-hmm. know, I'm curious because you move in very sophisticated circles. And um, and it's a different world from the one in which your parents, you know, could go to church every day and everyone around them uh, or many people around them did that. And, I mean, I, I wonder, yeah. I just feel like you, you carry this so much out front. And I just wonder if you bump into that with people being uncomfortable with it or if no. this was a decision you made. No?
1: No. Hmm. I don't because I um I mean I've never it, no, so nobody uh-huh. says to me like or people will say to me like I don't believe in God or my God's not the same as your God or yeah cool um, that's how I manage, you know, so I'm always interested in how do you manage, but nobody um, I don't consider it like um, a problem to talk about my faith. Um, I find it you know wonderful actually
0: mm. There was something, yeah. there's something really lovely you write about your grandmother that she was a person of such tremendous faith that you were aware of that. And yeah,
1: I was fascinated with it because it seemed so like, where'd you get that?
0: And that would be Rose Kennedy,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she, um, I wish she were around today because I'd have so many other questions for her, but mm. she seemed so um, just certain in her faith unwavering in her faith and quite confused as to why I couldn't have her faith. Mm -hmm. You know, she was it was so matter of fact to her. And I was so like, wow, I was very aware that she was getting through a lot of really difficult things Mm -hmm. in life. And she was attributing her ability to do that to her faith. So I was very aware as a young girl, like, I got to get me some of that um, Mm because, you know, that that seems to be working for her. Also from my mother, I mean, my mother's best friend on the planet was her brother, uh, President Kennedy. And I was very aware as a young child that when he was killed, um, like, wow, this was not going to be pretty in my house. Mm -hmm. Um, And I watched my mother with her faith and I saw like she's getting through this, I think because of that and because of her work, too. You know, I was aware of both. So I thought like. Those things, and then watching my grandmother; those help people get through life. So, how do you get that? <laughs> there, there's a story you tell that you asked your grandmother
0: about yeah. how you get that, and and she said, she said, if you want faith, you ask for it.
1: Yeah, Is that right. And it was that. Yeah, she's like, you just ask God for it, and then looked at me like, duh, <laughs> and you know, kind of like, I was just like, what? No, duh. Here, I don't have that, mm-hmm. and. um but I have asked, actually, God for it over the years, and I keep just saying, like, you know, help me. Give me some of that. Give me some of that. I want to strengthen that. I want to strengthen that. And lo and behold, it's stronger. It's there. But I, I, every morning, I have to say, I pray, and every evening, I pray, and um, I ask for guidance. I ask for direction. I ask for strength. And... Somehow I have it Mm -hmm. or, you know, that doesn't mean like I don't have, you know, days where it like is wobbly or where I'm wondering like, holy, what the hell am I doing? Or this is hard. Or, you know, I had that when I came home from the beauty counter thing, you know, Saturday night I'd landed. I'd just spoken this 5,000 women, you know, (laughs) oh my God, oh my God. And I walked into an empty house and I'm like, Mm. this sucks. Mm. You know, I'm like, wow, this is, I don't like this, Mm. you know, and I was like. Okay, let's go tomorrow. Let's you know, so I think it's we all need something, you know, and I Hmm. so I find that I, you know, I was like, Wow, I need some help here. Need some help, and I go to the animal crackers, and you know, eat a a box of that, and I'm like, that doesn't help. And we go to bed. (laughs) But you know, I think it's it's true. You know, people have. I think that's also you know, big public lives. It looks like, wow, you're on the stage at Beauty Counter, and everybody's like, this is fantastic. And then that person that you're idolizing and think has it all together goes home to an empty house. Yeah. And maybe those women who are like sitting there going, oh, my God, you know, Maria Shriver has it. They're going home to a husband and two kids. And so I want them to see like their thing is <laughs> great. You idolizing their lives. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's like it's me saying, yeah. you know, also yeah. don't idolize yeah. my life, yeah. right? Yeah. Your life is great. Yeah. And yeah. Um, nobody's life is what it seems. So mm-hmm. like focus on your life. Focus mm-hmm. on what makes you feel good because that person who you're idolizing – you know, they may be going home to an empty house and an empty bed. Yeah. And I think people often think like, you know, about me like, oh, like I remember you said just a few minutes ago, you 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 operate in rarefied circles. I actually don't. Mm-hmm. And all my friends are, you know, three single moms, you know, or, or friends that I met in journalism. I don't really Well operate. also, you know, I mean it's a stupid thing for me to say because rarefied
0: circles like people are just people, right? Everyone, right? right, I mean, this is one thing you know. If you meet a lot of famous people, accomplished people, you also just realize they're just human beings, and it stops. That that phrase "rarefied circles" in fact doesn't is nonsensical, isn't it?
1: And that was important to me. You know, with the women's conference that I did, it was really important to me that it be a conference. for everyday people. Yeah. I kept the tickets you know, really cheap. Yeah. I brought people in you know, who didn't have to pay, because I wanted my view of the world, where people mingled, where Sandra Day O'Connor would sit next to you know, a woman from a domestic violence shelter. That's the world I want to live in. Mm-hmm. And so that was the world I tried to create with the Women's conference um, when I was first lady. And that's the world I inhabit. And I want to inhabit. And that's why journalism for me was so great because it took me out of right. my world. Right. Got and uh, I had this longing to get out of my world. And uh, journalism gave me that. And it allowed me to meet people that I never would have met had a, quote, stayed in my world. Mm. So
0: let me ask you this um, as we close um, what right now, as you look around the world and as you kind of inhabit your life, which you just described so beautifully, like what, what makes you despair and where are you finding hope?
1: Oh, that's really, because um, I find them both <laughs> in any given day, you know, <laughs> uh, really, actually. I find um, what, what causes me despair is the loneliness uh, that I encounter with people you know, as I go out on this book tour, the, the pain that so many people have and experience and how they feel like that they're so alone with that. Um, I get it, but it, there's something like I wish I could put my arms in this collective embrace of people um, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like, wow, there's just so much pain or struggle out there. And I don't think, you know, my brother said to me once, you know, I think it's the books you write that you, <laughs> you know, you should write a book about sex or something that where people come up with fun stuff. You write about Alzheimer's and death and what he said. So everybody, I said, no, I, actually, I think that's just the world. Mm-hmm. And I think um, people feel comfortable coming up and telling me their stories. Which I really feel honored by. So that, but it it causes me despair that people feel so alone. What brings me hope are the same people mm-hmm. that I meet who are so energized about changing the world. Mm-hmm. I, I have so much hope uh, in humanity. I have so much hope that there's so many good people out there who don't get a lot of attention, whose voices perhaps don't rise up, that but that are out there and whose stories are unbelievable and um, who are starting organizations, jumping in to run for office, trying to change gun laws, trying to change you know workplace laws, trying to help you know women of all economic backgrounds. And that to me is so hopeful and exciting and inspiring. And so I, I meet both on a given day. Uh, last night I spoke at my church, and it was like five, six hundred people, and a woman came up and um, And she was like, you know, my 23-year-old son died in a car accident a year ago. And this is my first night out. And I was like, oh, my God. And she goes, and I finally feel like I can get up and go out. And it was my only child. And I I just looked at her and I was like, I'm so sorry. She goes, it's okay. I've come to a place. I was like, well, no, it's not okay. And, And it was just this like moment of like, I was like, oh, my God. I don't know how that woman came here tonight i don't know how Mm -hmm. that woman is standing and you know three women later is a woman who's like can i come you know i want to work with you on your architects of change i'm so excited (laughs) about i'm young and i'm invited and i'm you know want to change the world i want to you know pass a bill for caregivers in california and i'm like Mm -hmm. wow Mm -hmm. you know and so every other person has like a different story of Mm -hmm. one of despair and one of hope and they're all in the same room They were all in the same room last night, and we're all in the same room. Yeah. Yeah.
0: This was such a beautiful conversation. I just, it's really a gift,
1: and I can't wait to put it on the air. Oh, well, thank you. You gave me a line that I can take, uh, you know, raising up my eye. (laughs) I like that. I'm raising up my eye, and that's, uh, I'm kind of standing at long last, kind of firmly Mm -hmm. in my eye. I wrote this thing the other, like two months ago, and I started on my book tour. Mm. Um, that I walked out onto the stage and it was the second night of my book tour and I looked up and the rafters were filled and everybody was holding my book and I thought I was in the wrong auditorium. I looked and I had this kind of, that's the thought that came up, I'm like in the wrong stage, I walked into the wrong room and then I looked around and I saw, oh my God, wait a minute, these people have my book, so I'm in the right place and oh my God, mm. they came to hear me I'm not here trying to get a vote from my father or my brother or my uncle or my cousin. I'm not here campaigning for Arnold. I'm not here for NBC. I'm here for me. Hmm. And it's the first moment I'm 62 and I'm like, okay, I deserve to stand on this stage. I like, I got my eye on. <laughs> so um, I say that to yes. people so they don't despair. Yeah. that sometimes it takes really long time to feel like you deserve to be on the stage. you deserve to be in the room, you you have earned your eye.
0: Maria Shriver is a special anchor for NBC News. She's also the former First Lady of California and the author of several books, including Just Who Will You Be? and, most recently, I've Been Thinking, Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations for a Meaningful Life. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Erin Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Erin Colasacco, Kristen Lin,
1: Profit Idowu,
0: Casper Ter Sue Phillips, and Jeffrey Bissoy. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip hop artist Lizzo. OnBeing was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
1: On being is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.